Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up will mean a great deal to us and will help us reach more people. Our goal is to allow the wisdom, honesty, and encouragement found in the life and writings of Henry Nouwen to speak to a world hungry for meaning. Now let me introduce you to my friend Paul Pinkowski. And together we're talking about something that's been really important to both of us, Voices for Peace. We have had two annual events that have focused on peacemaking. This most recent one was uh, set here in Toronto and our themes were uh, came out of the front lines of peacemaking, people who have gone to the front lines and have been there and have made a difference and who are committed to that, even though the ground might be dangerous. One of the heroes of that is a, a man named Father Bob Holmes. Father Bob uh, has been a part of our committee uh, and we asked him to share what was going on. Tell me a bit about what you've learned about Bob Holmes. Bob is an amazing person. He's 83 years old, if memory serves me correctly. He had a career with the Brazilians as a priest, but as an educator mostly. So he's been all over North America, uh, working mostly with underprivileged students and uh, trying to assist them with their education and development. Um, And in retiring from education, he's become a member of Christian Peacemaker teams and I believe founded the Brazilian Center for Justice and Peace. And Bob is on the front lines. He's not, he's not thinking about peace, uh, but he's actually on the front lines in Gaza, um, in New Brunswick with the McMacks and the, uh, and the RCMP, uh, trying to be there as a voice for peace, a voice for reconciliation. And uh, in addition, he can be found organizing any number of, um, of protests or participating in them if he feels that there's something that needs to be given closer attention in terms of injustice in the world. So Bob at 83 has more energy than most of us put together. And the message he brings in his talk is a message of hope. It's a message of Palestinians and Israelis in spite of their deep, deep losses in terms of family and in terms of property and their deep grief being able to meet face-to-face and build positive relationships together. They're amazing stories. I know you'll enjoy it. Please listen with us now for Bob Holmes in the Voices for Peace conference. Well, blessed are the peacemakers. That's the name of my talk. And uh, we're talking about gospel peacemaking. And uh, I love this icon out here. Jesus behind barbed wire, looking through the barbed wire. And uh, it fits in with his mission statement, which we get in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He's reading from Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he sent me to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, freedom for the oppressed, open the eyes of the blind, and announce the time of God's reign. That's the the mission. And so you can look at this and you can see it either way. 
maybe he's looking in at us and saying, I'm coming to set you free. And, or maybe he's saying, you have to see me in the people that are being oppressed and come and, and offer me freedom. It's a powerful, powerful one. By the way, I usually have, I like to throw pictures up on the screen and you can't darken this room, so I'm, I'm helpless. So my, my things are going to be right here. Uh, the second thing is how do you do all these things? And again, Jesus tells us quite clearly, you know, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. And you know, in our culture, you, no, 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 you stand up and smack them back. That's, this is the, the way to do things. And he says, no, that's just adding violence to violence. That's not working. Well, then if you're not going to do that, then bug out and get out of here. <laughs> he says, no, no, that's cowardice. So you've got to stay there. So what are you going to do? Well, this is what gospel peacemaking is about, finding some way to nonviolently resist the injustice. Find some way to reach out and touch the heart, the conscience, the humanity of the person who's doing the evil, the injustice, whatever it is. That's love your enemy. It's a, a very different kind of peacemaking. So what I'm going to do today is just tell some stories. And they're, going, they're all based on CPT work, Christian peacemaker teams. And uh, I'm going to take you first to Palestine and tell you a couple of stories. And then I'll take you in Canada with the indigenous communities that CPT's been working with. And this will describe, uh, the stories kind of describe gospel peacemaking. But I'm not going to be talking about the Christian peacemaker teams. I'm going to be talking about the people themselves. So I'm going to start in Palestine. And this is a picture of Ben and Mora. And uh, they came and spoke to our group. I've had them speak to groups several times. I'll tell you about Ben first. Ben is Jewish, Israeli, born in Israel. And he told us his story. His daughter was a, an officer in the Israeli army. And one day, he heard on the news that a suicide bomber had come into the army camp where she was and blew himself up and five Israeli soldiers were killed. So he called his daughter immediately, no answer. Called her friends, no answer. Called the base, no answer. And about two or three hours later, somebody knocked on the door and he opened it and said, what took you so long? He knew his daughter had been killed. And he described the anger, the grief. He wanted to take a gun and go out and shoot the first five Palestinians he saw because they killed five of his soldiers, and including his daughter. And he was devastated. After a while, after a few days, maybe a few weeks, finally somebody touched him on the shoulder and said, 
There's a meeting tonight of the family compact, the family um, circle. He says, what's that? Oh, these are families like yourself, people like yourself, who've lost somebody in this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He says, I, I, don't, I don't want to go. He says, no, no, you need to go. You don't have to say anything, just listen. So he went. And the first thing that blew him apart was half the people there were Palestinians and half were Israelis. And they, he listened as they told their stories. And he began to realize that the tears taste the same no matter whether you're a Palestinian or Israeli. Your blood is the same color. And it really profoundly influenced him. And he began to stay and work with them. Moira, Moira was born in the Caribbean and she went to school in uh, Texas and she fell in love with a Palestinian. And they decided to get married only on the condition, his condition, that they go back and live in Jerusalem and that they raise their children Muslim. And she agreed to that. And she had three beautiful young girls, children, and then one day, they were going to go to Tel Aviv to go swimming because they lived in Jerusalem. They had a Jerusalem residency which allowed them to travel more. And her husband was coming to pick them up and ran into a traffic block. Some kind of a action, some kind of a clash was going on and, and he had to jam on his brakes and he got out of the car to see what was going on and he was shot dead. An Israeli soldier shot him dead, for whatever reason. Moira went through the same process. The grief, the anger. What do I do? How am I going to raise my three children in this situation? She had become a Palestinian and a Muslim herself. And she was just devastated. And again, a friend came and said, you need to come to the family circle. And she went. And she was blown away because there were Jewish Israelis there. She wasn't expecting that. And the same thing happened to her. Listening to those stories, she recognized, we can't go on killing each other. We have to bring an end to this. And so they go out together. And there are 700 in the circle who go out in pairs. One Israeli, one Palestinian, one Jew, one Muslim. And they speak to the schools and tell the kids, this has to end. We're all brothers and sisters. We have to learn to live with each other. And this is gospel peacemaking, even though they're Jewish and Muslim. Fantastic. Second story. This is Sami Awad. He's Palestinian. He's a Christian Palestinian. He lives in Bethlehem. His father was uh, probably the preeminent nonviolent uh, Palestinian leader in the first Intifada, and he got banned. <laughs> He, they had American citizenship as well as Palestinians, so... But he picked up. 
from his father, from his uh, grandfather, actually, father. And um, we often go and talk to him to find out what kind of peacemaking is he doing. And he's, he's led all kinds of nonviolent actions, and we've actually done trainings with them as CPTers. And they, um, the thing he's working on right now is he thinks we have to develop trust between the two communities. He formed a community or a, an organization called Holy Land Trust. He says that's what's missing is trust. And so he says it's really important to understand the trauma narrative of the other side. So he went to Auschwitz. He spent a week in Auschwitz so that he could understand where the trauma that the Jewish community that founded Israel was coming from. And he, it really touched him. But he also learned that, you know, when you and I go to the Holocaust Museum, we say, uh, this must never happen again to anyone. But when the Israelis go to the Holocaust Museum, they come out and they say, this must never happen again to us. We will be armed to the teeth. Every one of us will be a soldier. This will never happen again to us. So it's a very different reaction to the trauma. And it was important for him to know that. And that's why they're, they're, the army is so important. Then he went looking for someone who wasn't just a, a peacenik Israeli, but somebody who was a rabid settler who lived on the land, but who was willing to hear the trauma narrative of the Palestinian people. So he made an arrangement to meet with Rabbi Hannah Schlesinger. And as he told the story of the first meeting, he said they met in Jerusalem and they met in a coffee shop and he, he said, uh, I was really worried, how am I going to start this conversation? How we... He just was unsure. But he didn't need to worry about that at all because as soon as the rabbi sat down, he says, I want you to know then in 1948, when the state of Israel was founded, it was a miracle. And in 1967, when we took over the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, the miracle was complete. And I want you to know that God's promise to us that this land is ours is eternal. It's always going to be ours. And Sammy said his heart sank. <laughs> but then Rabbi Schlesinger said, but we have a covenant which says that we are to be a light to the nations. And the closest nation to us is the Palestinians. So we cannot go on treating them the way we're treating them. And Sammy relaxed a little bit. And they've gone on to work together and they formed a group and the group's getting larger of settlers and Palestinians. A lot of the Palestinians 
think he's crazy. They don't, they don't, they, you shouldn't go and talk to those people, you know. But he's trying to bring them together by sharing each other's trauma narrative so that they understand each other. And then he says, we cannot build a future on trauma. We have to both agree to let go of that and build a common future together on the land. Well, wow, that's peacemaking. That's loving your enemy. Okay, I'm going to switch to Canada. This picture was taken right over there <laughs> in Queen's Park. It's Bob Lovelace. Bob Lovelace is a, a member of the Ardoc Algonquin First Nation. He's also a professor at Queen's University. He's a former chief. And I met him when a uranium company was going on to the Ardoc Algonquin territory, which has never been ceded. They have, they have no treaty, so it's their land. And they were going to uh, explore for uranium on their land. And the Algonquin said, no way. We have experience from other religious indigenous communities where we know how toxic uranium mining is to the rivers. And we are the protectors of the rivers. So they put up a barricade and they kept them out. And the company went to the courts in Kingston and they got an injunction against the barricade, against the blockade. And so CPT was called down to come and be with them. And we were there when they read the injunction. And uh, they weren't alone. They had the, uh, the local people also who lived in that area who were mostly white. Uh, they didn't want a uranium mine in their backyard either. So they weren't alone. So we expected the next night, maybe at two in the morning, there would be an OPP raid like there was at Iprawash and like there was in Caledonia. And so we're CPT, there's four of us, Jim was there and I, and we're trying to figure out what do we do? Well, we have two inside defense and two outside defense, and you know, we'll document and we'll do what we can. And nothing happened. And about nine o'clock in the morning, a, an unmarked car came up and a man and a woman got out in plain clothes and introduced themselves as OPP officers. One, the woman was First Nations OPP officer. and said, we are liaison officers. This can't be solved with, with police coming in and, and you know, arresting people. We have to solve it by dialogue. We were blown away. I mean, this, this is the OPP. <laughs> and it worked. Uh, they managed to get the lawyers from the company and, and the lawyers from Ontario and the lawyers from the federal government and the um, Ardoc and uh, First Nations, the uh, Algonquin First Nations people together. And they actually had quite a long period. They went for two or three months until finally, 
the Ontario government walked out. It was over. They weren't going to carry on. So immediately the judge enforced the injunction. He ordered that all the leaders of the Ardoc First Nation uh, come to court on the charge of uh, contempt of court, contempt of the injunction. And Bob Lovelace was the one who took the stand for all of them, there were six of them. And he was beautiful. He said, I'm caught. I'm caught between two sets of laws. I got the law in Ontario that says we have to allow this uranium mine to be explored for here and, and built if they find it. And, but we have an Algonquin law that says we must always protect the water and the land. And that's primary. He says, I'm going to obey the Algonquin law. The judge, they were already pleading guilty. They already admitted they were on the blockade. So they weren't saying we, we didn't do it. They were saying we had to do it. The judge was incredible. He said, okay, you're getting six months in jail and two $26,000 fine. Well, that was unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. I mean, usually you get, you know, three days in jail or maybe a $500 fine, but this was beyond belief. Everybody in the courtroom, a lot of his students actually, because the court's right beside the university, they just stood up and said, no! Everybody said, no! But they took him out in handcuffs. We did a few actions there at the court the next few weeks, we went, but went to the prison where he was. But then this picture was it over at Queen's Park. They appealed, not the conviction, because they were guilty, but the sentence, which was totally unreasonable. And so for four days, about 200 First Nations, not just Algonquins, but from all over Ontario, camped over here on the property. They were told you can't camp here, and they said, huh, we are going to, and, and they did. And we went down on the day of the appeals when the judges were going to give their verdict, and uh, it was down at Osgood, and uh, I couldn't even get in, the crowd was so big there. But the judges agreed with the appeal, and they cut the charge to time served, and totally wiped out the, the, uh, the fine. It was fantastic. And we had, and Bob was set free right then and there. He walked up University Avenue with us and it was fantastic. And you know, no mine ever got built. It was successful. Fantastic. This is a Mi'kmaq woman from the Elsie uh, Bugtog uh, Mi'kmaq uh, First Nation. And this is a, a painting of her, but it's an iconic photograph that's been made. Here's what happened. This was in New Brunswick, and uh, we got invited to come down because the Mi'kmaq at Elsie Bugtog were trying to stop the exploration for fracking, 
on their territory. And they too don't have a treaty saying that we gave away our land to you. This is, this is our land still. And so they're protecting the land and the water also. So when we got down there, there was uh, three of us. And uh, Jim, you might have been there too, I think. I think. And um, over 70 people got arrested. And it wasn't just them. They were, the Acadian population is very French area. And the Anglos also. There were all kinds of people getting arrested to stop the fracking. It was really something. But it kept on going. They kept on... Um, working. But then in October they discovered that the trucks that do the thumping, which sends the vibrations down and looks for the shale gas, they were all kept in a big yard that had a fence around it and only one gate. So they blockaded the gate <laughs> and they couldn't get the trucks out. And uh, that lasted for two or three weeks. And then, this time it was the RCMP. And they, they did what happened at Ipperwash. They came in in the middle of the night. There were only about 20 people actually sleeping at the blockade. During the day, the numbers were built up, but during the night it was small. And uh, 200 police came in. And they came through the woods. They came from every direction. And they were dressed in camouflage. And they had huge sniper rifles. We couldn't believe it. it, it nobody in there was being violent. It was really harsh. And um, they arrested everybody that was in there. By this time, a huge number of people had come. And there were so many cops that you couldn't get anywhere near. And uh, the women were fantastic. They went right up to this line of cops across the street and they tried to get in. And of course they couldn't get in. So they prayed. This woman is kneeling there with a feather and it's an eagle feather. It's a prayer feather. And when the cops finally decided to clear everybody out, they marched forward and they arrested her and anybody else. They pepper sprayed people. They had dogs and, uh, that were threatening to bite people. It was horrendous. However, we went back the next day to the First Nations Reserve and the chief spoke and said, we have to heal things. We have to heal the trauma of that night so many of us experienced. We have to heal our relationship with the police and we have to move forward legally. We have to get a legal strategy. Well, they never did the fracking. So much news got out that the Conservative Party got defeated and the Liberal Party said, we will do a moratorium on fracking. So they were successful. Again, it was nonviolent and it was very noticeable. Everybody knew about it and it worked out really, really well. So those are, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, nonviolent peacemakers, people who aren't trying to knock down the enemy, but trying to find some way to change them, touch their hearts. It's Jesus' way. How are we doing for time?
I could tell more stories, but let's see if you've got any questions. Bob, I have a question. Yes. Could you tell us about the blue scarf? Oh, the blue scarf. Because I think, I, think I, I don't want anyone here to think that this is a liturgical vestment. I want them to know about what this is. Well, you heard a little bit about it from Kathy and, and myself this morning. Uh, the Blue Scarf Movement started in Afghanistan with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And these young people, high school kids, university students, men and women, they believed in equality, so the men and the women were treated equally in this organization. And they got them from all the different tribal groups. They made sure. And they wanted no more war, they wanted no more inequality, and they were very green. They wanted no more climate destruction. And so they became very active. And so, uh, Kathy told you a few things about them, but I'll tell you one more. They also are very smart. And they're really, uh, what would the word be, computer literate. And they decided, it's not good enough to keep this in Afghanistan and Kabul, we have to go worldwide. And so they, sent out a message all across the planet to get a million people wearing blue scarves calling for an end to war, an end to inequality, an end to destroying the, the, the planet, climate change. A really powerful message. And they're living in a war zone. And they have been for their whole lives. There's been four decades of war there. And, so, and there's 50... Um, uh, refugee camps in Kabul. Like when the year before Israel, the uh, Israeli, um, the year before the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, there was one and a half million people in Kabul. Now there's five million, and that far huge majority are um, refugees. And then there's not enough jobs for them. And so one of the things that the, the kids are doing, they recognize, wow, there's a huge number of kids on the street. They're selling things. They can't go to school because they have to raise money for their families. So they started a street kids school on Fridays, which is, you know, the weekend. And uh, they had 100 kids when I was there. They came in, they, they come in, they teach them school, whatever the things they need. But they can't, kids can't go home without money, so they send them home with food for their family that they get from local stores who agree with what they're doing. It's just incredible the work they're doing. And um, they have 17 different teams. And, you know, they've got the ones that are working on the green projects, the ones that are working on the scarf projects. It's, uh, it's amazing. So we've tried to pick that up here with our walk tomorrow. You're all invited to come tomorrow, 1 o'clock, down at uh, the uh, uh, Peace Garden at uh, City Hall. And we're going to go for two hours and end up in Grange Park. And we'll all have our blue scarves. I have blue scarves for you if you come. And, uh, yeah, it's, we're carrying on the same thing. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jane, and I'm a retired high school history and English teacher. And in the summer of 1992, I was one of 
15 teachers chosen from all across Canada to go on this Holocaust and hope trip. And so we visited five concentration camps, listened to the stories of survivors, and really were overwhelmed by the horror of it all. And then we got to see the hope in Israel. And we had a dinner with Israeli teachers. And what really concerned me, I mean, we had a wonderful talk and dinner and all the rest, but they told me that if their graduation um, exercise for the students was to travel to Poland and Germany and basically, you know, do the trip that I had done and then come back and put them in a uniform and have them do their military service. And I thought, how could, as a young, impressionable young person, could you see all that horror, realize what your people had suffered, and then act with any kind of, um, you know, j j compassion and, you know, uh, uh, judge, good judgment in what you were doing. You would be so emotionally wounded that your natural impulse would be, well, we're gonna show you, this is what you did to us. And I thought, how could you as educators do this in good conscience? It really, really troubled me. So I just wondered, Bob, what you thought about that. Well, we try to go and talk to a, a settler when we take our peace and justice pilgrimages, which you can sign up for. There's a thing out there going in September, October. And, um, and so does the CPT delegations. And the last CPT delegation I was with, we met with a, a settler. And we just said, tell us what it's like being a settler. And he just waxed eloquently on how wonderful it was. And he told us all the good things that were going on. And, and we didn't want to argue with him, but we did want to ask him questions and ask him to explain. And so we asked him, you know, what's your relationship with the Palestinians? He said, well, they're fine. Yeah, but you, you recognize that they think you're on their land and, and you know, you know, the we talked about international law, we talked about human rights, and the, the examples we gave, he couldn't refute because they were happening all the time, and he certainly knew they were happening, and he knew we knew. So finally he said, well, you have to understand, security trumps human rights, security trumps international law. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the attitude. And uh, so if, unlike Hannah Schlesinger, they couldn't see or admit the trauma narrative of the Palestinians. And so the real peacemaking is what Samuel Watt is doing. And, and Hanan too also. They're trying to say we must learn each other's narrative. And the same thing that uh, Ben and Mora are doing. We, we gotta stop killing each other and we have to learn to live together and share this land together. And so what's, what I hope comes out of all this is not, a, not two nations, I don't think that can ever happen now because of the facts on the ground, but one democratic nation. But of course it won't be a Jewish nation, it'll be Jewish and uh, Palestinian. So, I don't think I'm going to live to see it, but 
Who's young here? <laughs> Tim, no, oh, yeah, you'll see it, Tim. Good. I have a question, Father Bob. I talked recently to someone who lives in Jerusalem on a settlement, and the person told me that she was unaware about the, the lack of water, the, the rational water that Palestine has to, to endure. Do you think this is possible, that they, are, they don't know? It's quite possible, because I've talked to several uh, <coughs> Jewish peacemakers now who have seen it and have changed. But they would say to me, I grew up until I was 18 and didn't know. I lived only 30 kilometers away from the Palestinian villages, but I didn't know. And so that they, but once you see it, and most of them who've changed have gone into the army, been sent into the occupied territories, and just are, oh my God, how can this be going on? How can we be doing this? And the group have, have formed the, um, uh, what's, it, what's it called? Breaking the silence. Breaking the silence, yes, exactly. And they, they started in, Sudbury, in um, Hebron, where we work. And I remember meeting with, with Saul, the guy who founded it, and he said, I was working in Sudbury, and I was doing things that I knew were just absolutely wrong. We should not be treating people this way. And he went to his officer and said, you know, I can't do this anymore. They said, well, we'll give you a different duty. But when he left the army, he founded the, uh, um, that group, and... There's 700 of them now, maybe more now, it was 700 a few years ago, who are, you know, breaking the silence and telling the truth about what happened. But you're right, most of them, you live in Tel Aviv, you never, you know. But I think it's a willful blindness. When Jesus says you've got to, you know, give sight to the blind, I think this is one of the works of peacemaking is to give sight to the blind, willfully, willfully blind. I don't want to see this. It's good. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help but notice that in your stories, even though you're a lead uh, for the Christian peacemaking teams, that in fact um, all the heroes were either Muslim or Jewish. Yeah. And could you speak... Well, well, Samuel Watt is Christian. Right. Um, but could you speak to the whole notion of... I think there has been an arrogance within the Christian community as though, in essence, we come into troubled areas to bring peace, where in fact, what you've described is going into areas which are war zone conflict areas, but nonetheless discovering that the peace is already there in people like you've talked about. That's beautiful. We, um, when I joined CPT, our motto was getting in the way. So we go into a a uh, conflict area and get in between the two parties and try to calm things down. And we learned that doesn't work. And um, I'll give you an example. I, I went down with the Mi'kmaq in uh, the, working with their fishing rights. And uh, this is a different Mi'kmaq group around the year 2001 maybe. And they have a treaty. They actually have it written right in a treaty that they have fishing rights. And, and, and 
even to selfish, not just for food. And the government of Canada, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, said, no, you have to have a license from us. You will fish where we tell you, when we tell you, and you have to get your license from us. And, and they said, no, we have a treaty. So anyway, we were down there and we were uh, CPTers, there three of us. Bill Payne was there. And um, the RCMP were treating the First Nations really badly. Like, you know, just disgusting. So the three of us zoomed into uh, the head office there of the RCMP and saw the head guy and we gave him hell. And we just said, this is not right, you can't do this. And we were really proud of ourselves. <laughs> we came back and the uh, Mi'kmaq people said to me, said to both of us, all three of us, don't ever do that again. You do not speak for us. Speak for yourselves. And it was about a week later, we had an action and uh, I had gotten arrested, Bill and I. <laughs> and was immediately interviewed by the CBC radio. So what am I gonna say this time? I said, I'm a Canadian citizen. I have a treaty with the Mi'kmaq and we're not keeping it. I'm really angry, and that's why I did what I did. So I spoke for myself. And uh, the, uh, the Mi'kmaq said, that's what you should do. <laughs> so that's a good example of it. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Okay. Uh-oh, Tim. <laughs> So, um, I know Father Bob is hobo, that's a long story, but uh, I had a chance to travel to, uh, on one of the pilgrimages. Um, I wondered if you could speak to the, the difficulty, I know I've faced this, and, and just in the whole narrative and speaking about human rights issues in Palestine and justice issues, that to criticize Israel at times you have to respond to accusations of anti-Semitism. And I just wondered if you had any suggestions as to how to navigate that. That's good, it happens all the time. As soon as you criticize Israel, you're called anti-Semitic. So I asked Jeff Helper one time, and Jeff Helper is Israeli, born in the States, but moved to Israel. And he is heart sick with what's going on there. And so he's working to you know, bring peace. I said, what do you do when they, they say you're anti-Semitic? He says, stick to international law and stick to human rights. These are worldwide agreements that Israel has signed being part of the United Nations. And so that I use stories all the time and we talk a lot in the schools and uh, they said, well, how you know, how come we don't know about this and how come this goes on? And so they begin to ask the questions. I don't have to say this is a human rights wrong. They see it right away. So that's the best answer. It's just, it has to do with human rights. It has to do with international law. 
One of the things that I said when I was accused of, or it was suggested very tactfully, that I was uh, being anti-Semitic, I said, well, aren't Palestinians Semites as well? <laughs> oh. It's true. That's true. I'm just wondering, Father Bob, if you could just share a little bit about what the different kinds of training that CPT can offer. Because at lunchtime, people were talking about, you know, anger and, and how can you transform the energy of anger towards, um, and, and all these, the, the whole thing of behaving in a way that touches the heart, touches the humanity, and brings transformation. What, what kinds of training does CPT offer that helps people to be present in nonviolent, transformative ways? Well, you asked the question is dead on because uh, on Monday night and Tuesday night, Dwyer and I are going to be in Owen Sound and in um, hmm. another northern town. And we're going to do nonviolence training with the high school kids in both these places. What we do is we, uh, we do some work trying to find out what's violent and what's nonviolent. We, we call it a, a spectrum, you know, and we draw a line down the center of the floor and give them some scenarios and stand wherever you think is violent or nonviolent. Then we get a good discussion going on that. We talk a lot about it, um, if, if you're a bystander and you see something going on, is that violent? To be a bystander and do nothing. And they, you know, they spread out. But, but then we talk a lot about being an active bystander instead of a passive one. And then we practice trying to do that. Trying to de-escalate verbal violence. And, uh, you know, they, they, we do it and we role play it. And, and we talk a lot about, okay, what are the things you have to do? Well, first of all, <laughs> if you're going to be working with somebody who's uh, giving you a hard time, you have to start here. You have to start inside yourself. And you have to look after your own anger. Because if you let your anger out, it's not going to help. And you also have to get rid of your fear, because if you're afraid, then that's... They, they win. <laughs> and then you have to calm your nervous system down. We, we work a lot with them in terms of body language. Your body language sends far more messages than your words do. It's how you stand. So I have to stand always with my hands down where they can see them, not, not you know, down here. Your body language sends messages that you don't have to be afraid of me. And it also sends the message, I'm not afraid of you. And that's, you can break down the, uh, the barrier. And then you usually try something like um, distraction. Hi, my name's Bob. What? <laughs> and you get their name and, and then you get talking and then you can say, you know what you're doing. How, how can you, how can you do this? It's a war crime. And he says, "Well, I'm ordered to do it." Well, your orders stink. 
You know, your orders are a war crime. And make them think, you know, that type. That's part of it. And then we do a lot of role plays of a situation where you could intervene and do something and how not to do it. Because <laughs> that's usually what happens is you, you move in and you start pushing people around. Well, no, that's not how you should do it. There's other ways of intervening. How do you help somebody who's been targeted? Like uh, somebody on the subway. And, um, you know, your primary purpose wouldn't be to go after the people, the person who's doing the problem, is to go and be, protect that person. Sit with them, talk with them, ignore this other person, stuff like that. We just practice role-playing, and CPT does that in our own training as well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up, or even share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website and any content, resources, or books discussed in this episode. There's even a link to books to get you started in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nowen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.